our scripture this morning. As you begin turning, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have a Bible there in your pew in front of you. And, and we ask that you open it, you turn it to page 1039 in your pew Bible, or find Luke chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 1 today. We're going to go all the way through verse 32. Um, if you know your, your Bible well enough, uh, that means it's the whole chapter. Uh, and we're going to leave the lights on today. I know we've been uh, doing a thing with the lights on and off, and, and, and uh, that, that's really to help visually focus. But I'm going to ask that you keep your Bibles out the entire message today. You're going to need it if you have a pen or pencil, and uh, it is okay to write in your Bible. Um, so do so if you feel so led, but I want you to hold that uh, Bible open as we go through it today. But before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we begin a new five-week series, Outcast, the Friends of Jesus. And so for five weeks, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke and really exploring who these outcasts are and, and noticing how Jesus pursues the outcast, that it doesn't matter our past, our history of what we've done or who we are, that Jesus pursues the outcast, that there is grace and forgiveness for the outcast, and that not only is there grace and forgiveness, but God specifically calls the outcast and has a distinct purpose for every person in his kingdom. And so we're going to spend five weeks really exploring the friends of Jesus and exploring this grace and forgiveness that Jesus pursues us with. And so this week, we're going to start in chapter 15 of Luke. And I picked chapter 15 of, of Luke because it's the lost chapter. Now, it's not, it's not a chapter that was lost and they found it later and put it back in. They're like, oh, whew, we found chapter 15. It's been gone for a while. It, it's the lost chapter because in it, Jesus tells a parable of lost things, from lost sheep to a lost coin to a lost son. And, and so really, in, through this parable, he, gives, he paints a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so we're going to begin there today. So if you'll join me here in verse 1. Luke writes these words. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And we're going to pause there. That's why we're going to hold this Bible open all day. You see, what we're, this is how we're going to go. We're going to go a few lines and we're going to pause. But we, we can't get very far in the scripture today without unpacking a few things. So here Jesus is and he has it tells us a crowd gathering around him of tax collectors and sinners that are coming near to hear the very message that Jesus is going around and proclaiming. One, a release of captives, a victory over death, of good news and forgiveness for those who are far off from God. And who shows up to hear it but tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts of first century Israel. See, sinners, we have to understand isn't the way we understand them here in the United States. Sinners isn't like, oh yeah, we're all sinners. It's sinners were a different class of people in the first century in Israel. They were a complete separate class. It was the disabled and the diseased. It was, it was the lame. It was those who worked in professions that were unseemingly or unclean, such as tax collectors and strippers and prostitutes and, and people who use their bodies to make money in such ways and, and and they were a completely different class 
than the upstanding Israelites who were, you know, God's chosen people and who were righteous. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests and chief priests made these designations of these different class. And from the very beginning, sinners were taught, were ingrained in them that they were outcasts. And not only were they outcasts, but that God had already judged them and there was no forgiveness available. So here Jesus is. He's, sinners are coming to hear what Jesus has to say. And it also tells us tax collectors were gathering around Jesus. And, and it's interesting that they make the distinction of tax collectors and sinners because tax collectors were put in the second class of citizenship just like sinners. And it's, it, it's not because of why we think. Not because who likes the tax man, right? It's, it's April 15th. Who's all excited about that date of the year? Not a whole lot of people. You got to give the government money. But, it, but it's, it's more than that. It's not that they were just deceitful and harmful people that when they came to your house to collect $25, they said you really owed 30 so that they could stuff their own pockets and become wealthy. It was more than that. They despised tax collectors because they were under the rule of Rome in the first century. Rome owned the entire world. They had conquered the known world from England to India. Rome was in control. And now they didn't have fancy things like technology and cell phones and drones or planes or cars. And so the way that you control an entire empire that large is you also must have an army equally as large. And so when they would conquer places, they would enlist the soldiers that they didn't kill to come be part of the Roman army, part of the legions, and then they would pay them and feed them and take care of them. And to fund this army, it requires money, taxes. And so tax collectors were Jewish men who volunteered in Israel, were Jewish men who volunteered to go and collect funds to pay for the Roman army that was keeping them in captivity and oppression. It was as if your neighbor was raising money and funding the murderers of your family. This is why tax collectors were so despised. And so here when he tells us that tax collectors and sinners, these low lives, these no goods, these outcasts, these riffraffs, these thems, are gathering around Jesus, and, and, and they're drawing near, and the Pharisees and scribes were also around Jesus because Jesus uh, had this thing where he was the son of man and the Messiah, and so the Jewish religious leaders were drawn to him as well, and as they're gathering around him to hear, there's grumbling going on, saying, as scripture says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so here, Luke sets the stage, the scripture sets the stage for who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to tax collectors and sinners, but then are also the religious self-righteous of the Pharisees and the scribes gathered around, and they're grumbling, and they're like, why is he eating with them? Why are they allowed here? Because remember, from the very beginning, they were a different class. They were already condemned dimmed by God. There was no forgiveness available for him. So what good would a Messiah do them? A Messiah was there to save God's chosen people. And so Jesus hears the grumble. 
And now the rest of chapter 15 are, are his words. And, and picking up in verse 3, here's what happens. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so when he begins here, he begins by saying, see, he told them this parable. He didn't say he tells them these parables. He told them this parable. So these three stories here are, are one parable. It, it's in art. It's, it would be called a triptych when you get three different paintings that make up one giant picture. And so through each one of these stories that Jesus tells in this one parable, it paints the fullness of the gospel. Alone they tell a part, but together they tell the whole. And so here he tells the, this first panel of the triptych, and he tells us about the sheep and the shepherd losing one of them. And he says, who wouldn't leave the 99 and go for the one? And remember who's in the crowd, the self-righteous and the second-class citizens, the outcasts. And conventional wisdom says, no, you don't leave your sheep. Jesus says that the Son of God leaves and finds the outcast, the lost, and brings them home. Not only does he bring them home, he carries us the whole way there and then rejoices and throws a party, not because we did anything, but because he did everything, and so heaven rejoices. And so, but there's a, there's a question in here. He, he said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if lost one, would leave the 99 go find the one? It, and if we've heard the story enough, we're, we're like, well, yeah, you go find the one sheep. Well, scientists have, have done studies on sheep and, and on all mammals, and they find out the intelligence of mammals by the weight of a brain in, in comparison with the weight of the overall body. And sheep rank among the least intelligent. Sheep have no idea that they're even sheep. There's zero self-awareness. Sheep don't remember where they just were or where they are going. And, and so a shepherd uses a, a crook and a dog and puts a bell on one of the sheep to, to keep them all together. And so when he asks the question of, of, of all of these shepherds, these tax collectors and these sinners, these Pharisees and scribes around him, well, what shepherd would leave their 99 sheep in open country, not fenced in, not pinned in, not held together, would leave them to go find the one lost one? And the answer is no one. No one would ever leave the 99 and go for the one, period. They would just consider it cost of doing business as a shepherd. I lost one sheep. I still got my 99, and you make it home, and you call it a day. And that's what the crowd was expecting. And Jesus says, but the Son of God, you don't control his grace. You don't control his forgiveness. You don't decide who is worthy of salvation and who is not. Jesus alone makes that distinction. And Jesus goes for the one that is lost. 
And so in this very first picture that he paints of the gospel, he doesn't paint what we must do to be saved. He paints first what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, does for us because that is the first move of the gospel. We don't move first. God does. That's the good news. God comes and chases us down. He's willing to risk everything he has for the ones he doesn't. And then he says, but he doesn't end there with the party and celebration. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And that's where Jesus makes it a little bit tougher. Oh, Jesus came and got me. But then there's repentance after. But it's done out of joy. Because if you're an outcast and we feel far off from God, as if we're already condemned, as if there's no forgiveness available for us, and Jesus invades our lives and pierces our hearts, our response is to turn from everything we knew and go straight to the Lord because we know now without a shadow of a doubt how he loves us. He was willing to risk everything to come after just one of us. So out of that, we repent. Because now we get to be near the Father. And so heaven rejoices. Heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. Not for the 99 who don't need it, but over the one who repents. A party is thrown in heaven. And then Jesus says he uses transition sentences. He goes on painting. He says this in verse 8. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the first panel in this picture is what the Son of God does, the work that Jesus does in the gospel story. And in this next panel, he paints the work of the Holy Spirit as fashioned by Christ's bride, his church. See, as Jesus is telling this part of the parable, he's gathered with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes. And for Jesus to say, What woman, for him to even tell a story of a woman was scandalous, and then to say that she was a wealthy woman who had ten silver coins. See, a silver coin represented a day's wage, and so she now had enough money for ten days' worth of living, ten days' wages, when in a time when most people lived day to day, if not day to every other day or day to every other week, money was a scarcity, and here was this woman rich with ten coins, and she loses one who can, who can say flippantly, it's just a coin. I have nine others. Why go find that one? But instead, she turns on a light. She tears apart her house. She sweeps everything up to search for the one. And when she finds it, what does she do? 
rejoices and throws a party and tells everybody she knows she found the coin. And so why would Jesus use this language of a woman other than when we read Scripture, the church of Jesus Christ is his bride. And so by the work of the Holy Spirit, his bride is not to be satisfied with who's already here, but we are called to find the lost coins in our neighborhoods, our families, in our communities. We have a calling to find the lost in the name of Jesus Christ to turn on the lights, to flip everything upside down, to go and find those who Jesus deems worthy, not to flippantly say, oh, well, I'm comfortable. This is good enough for me. It may be good enough for us, but Jesus says we don't get to determine what's good enough for him. And Jesus isn't done until he has everyone that Jesus wants. And he says, keep searching for those that I will call to me and pursue them the same way I pursued you. That there's nobody who's already condemned or outside the ability to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. So if we remember this, this crowd that he's talking to, he's talking to the outcasts, the tax collectors and sinners, but he, he begins telling this parable because the grumblings of the Pharisees and the scribes. So he's looking right at them when he tells this parable. Go find my lost coins. He says again, though, in verse 10, just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That the parties we throw as the church of Jesus Christ are to be the parties of those who have come to faith and repented of their sins to Jesus Christ. That is the reason to celebrate because that is the reason heaven celebrates. That's the reason that at the throne of God, the angels are singing and celebrating and rejoicing because what was lost has been found. Who was dead is alive because of Christ. So he continues. He continues his parable and painting of his picture in this third way. And he said there was a man, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
his father saw him and felt compassion and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. As Jesus tells the story, we have it marked in our Bibles. It's titled the parable of the prodigal son or yours may even say the parable of the lost son. There's one African translation that puts it the parable of the patient father. And here in this story, the, the younger son who, who takes his inheritance, squanders it all right here in, in verse 17. He says, but when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, and listen to his confession in verse 18, his repentance, it's right here, his confession, his repentance, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You don't say. He says, treat me as your slave. This was his plan to go to his father, to make this confession, to make this plea, make me your slave. He understands he's not worthy to be his son because he is, he's that outcast. He doesn't believe forgiveness is possible for him. He doesn't believe forgiveness is available to him. And so the father, when he sees his son, does not wait for him to come all the way. He was still a long way off. And he runs to him. And he gets him a robe, a ring, and shoes, all of the things that confer in first century Israel that he is his son. When he goes to his father to make the confession, I have sinned against you and heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He, the father does not let him ask to be a slave. He confers sonship on him. That upon his repentance, he is brought to faith in Christ. And there is the rejoicing that begins. And he kills the fattened calf, and everyone is celebrating and throwing a party, just as the shepherd threw a party, just as the woman and her friends threw a party. Here the father throws a party for his sons that return. And the whole trip back, even when he came to himself, he didn't think he was worthy of sonship. Didn't think he was worthy of being a beloved child of the Father. And as Jesus was telling this story to these tax collectors and sinners who have been taught since day one that they are not worthy of forgiveness, that condemnation is already what they've done. Jesus said, those here on earth don't make my rules. He deems them worthy of sonship, daughtership. That's why 
one of the most powerful things we proclaim is that when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior because of what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection, God adopts us as his sons and daughters. He doesn't make us his slave. We don't have to earn sonship or daughtership from God. He confers it upon us, not because of anything we did, but because of everything Christ accomplished for us and because Christ went and got us and brought us back. And so he throws a party. And in the midst of that party, Jesus continues and he says in verse 25, now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Sounds like he was grumbling. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look at these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. This still sounds like grumbling. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost. And so this whole parable began by the grumblings of those who already had the father and his things saying, why are they around him? Who let them in? Why is there riffraff invading my safe space that I've built walls around? Jesus says, because it's not your wall to build. It's my door to open. And yet, we don't know what happens to the older son. Jesus ends the story, and there, the older brother is left in the field. The father had come out and said, this is, this is your party too. We're celebrating because our family is back. The older brother was still grumbling. He was relying on his good works. But the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, tells us this, And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Paul says it in Romans 3, that no one is good, not one of us. So what happens to this older brother? He leaves it empty, but just a couple chapters later, in chapter 20, he tells us the parable of the wicked tenant. So there was a vineyard owner. And he had tenants, and they were making wine, and he sent a servant to go collect for him, and they beat him up and sent him back empty-handed. And he sent another servant and another servant, and two more times that happens. And so finally, the, the vineyard owner sends his son to go collect the debt. And the wicked tenants who had beat up the servants saw that 
the son was sent and that they could beat him up and steal his inheritance. So they killed him. And as we read the gospel, we see that on the day that Jesus was crucified, he was killed by those thinking they were protecting God from this man who was offering forgiveness to tax collectors and sinners. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, listen up, all men of Judea, there in Acts chapter 2, and he begins preaching, and he says, what was done by evil men to Jesus, God already knew, and he meant it for the forgiveness of sin, and that on this side of the cross, forgiveness is offered to those who think grace isn't for everyone and for those who think they've already been condemned. That on this side of the cross, Jesus is for everyone. We don't get to make the distinction of who's in and who's out. We don't get to build the walls. We don't get to draw the boundaries because Christ goes and finds the lost. He finds the outcast because they are the friends of Jesus, are the ones who are willing to leave the 99 and search with him for the lost. Grace through Jesus Christ is available because of what he did, not because of what we've done or how long we've been here and think we deserve it. Because the scripture tells us we deserve death. But because of Christ, we receive eternal life. And there's a party to be thrown today. There's a party to be thrown because we have family members and friends and neighbors and people in the community think and believe they're already condemned by God and forgiveness isn't available to them. And if we are to be his ambassadors, we are to carry that light of Jesus Christ. And under no certain terms are we to exclude anyone from his grace. But we are to take them to the shepherd who carries us Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as part of the crowd that the tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes gathered around Jesus. Lord, we hang on every word of his. We thank you for the, for the, that you sent him to find us. We thank you for the calling to go and find the lost. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that does not discriminate, but that is available for all. Lord, as we go out into this world today, may the Holy Spirit convict us and guide us 
should assurance the salvation we've received and a courage to share the grace that found us and hope found others. It's in Jesus' name we pray.